Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Howard Stutz and I bring you Flashback Part 3, the final installment of our three-part series on the history of the gaming industry in Nevada. After that, assistant editor Michelle Rindels has a story for us on the decriminalization of traffic tickets and what the implications could be. At the end of the show, Michelle and reporter Riley Snyder talk with Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson about his thoughts on the past legislative session. They go over the mining tax increase, police reform, and more. All right, and so we are back for the third part of the, the history of gaming in Nevada. And, and I'm here with our new reporter, Howard Stutz, to talk about all things Nevada history in, in terms of gaming. So two weeks ago, we talked about, you know, gaming getting started in Nevada, the 1930s, 1960s, the rise of the mob, and then the fall of the mob, and the rise of, of people like Sheldon Adelson and Steve Wynn and the billionaires. We also talked about the, the expanding casino industry, you know, starting in Nevada and then going to other states and in other countries and, 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 and the power that Nevada still holds over a lot of gaming, even around the world in terms of looking at it for, for gaming control boards and for taxing and, and all of that. So recently, in the last couple of years, we've, we've seen kind of another, I would say, reckoning for, for Las Vegas in, in terms of the pandemic, right? That was a major thing. And we're going to get to that a little bit later on. But first, I want to talk about th these two shifts away from the casino billionaires, right? We have Steve Wynn, who has, has, has left the Wynn Casino Company for the most part, and, and Sheldon Adelson, who passed away recently during the pandemic, actually. What does this mean for Nevada? Well, starting with Steve Wynn in 2018, the Wall Street Journal came out with a, a huge report about sexual harassment and numerous allegations that were brought up. Within a month, Steve Wynn stepped down as CEO, chairman and CEO, then sold all his stock and departed from the company. So that was a huge shift because his name was on the Wynn Resorts, Steve Wynn. They were building a casino in Boston, the Encore Boston Harbor, that opened eventually in 2019. It was a monumental shift because you had this monumental person in Nevada gaming, especially. I mean, Steve Wynn did go into Macau and build, a couple, build some casinos there with Wynn Resorts, but he was, in a sense, the modern face, the modern era of, of, of the Nevada gaming industry of Las Vegas, of the Strip build the Mirage, you think of the properties that he built, even brought dolphins to the, <laughs> to the, to the desert at the, at the Mirage, and he's out. And so that company went through a, a very monumental shift in management. Matt Maddox, who was Steve Wynn's like a, a president of the company, remained on as CEO. Wynn brought in, the company then revamped their entire board of directors, but brought in Phil Satry as the chairman. Phil Satry is well-known, was the chairman of Harrah's and, and was a legendary figure in Reno and, and in, in, in the gaming industry. He was kind of that calming influence that came in as the, as the chairman of Wynn Resorts and the companies moved forward. Sands is a different story. This is a company that Shell Nadelson, as I, as I said in the earlier show, he bought the Sands, Las Vegas, the Sands on the Strip, blew it up and built the Venetian, the Palazzo and the Sands Expo. He was the first to go into Macau in 2003, and Sands is probably the biggest American company in Macau. They've got, I want to say, about six or seven resorts in, in Macau. They went into Singapore. He was the driving force of that company. He passed away in January of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, he battled it for more than a year. Within 
a couple of months. Now, this was announced back in October of 2020 that the company was looking at selling its Las Vegas properties. Well, Sheldon Allison passed away in January, and less than two months later, the Sands announced they've sold all their Las Vegas properties to a group of VICI Holdings, which is a real estate investment trust, and Apollo, which is going to manage the casinos. And the Sands Expo is a $6.25 billion sale. Sands is now basically going to, is no longer going to be Las Vegas Sands. They're going to be Sands Corporation. And they're going to basically be an Asian gaming company with their holdings in Macau and Singapore. Uh, so that's going to be a real, we don't, that deal is not going to close till the end of the year. That's going to be a real change for Las Vegas. We don't know how this a company like Apollo as the manager is going is going to change things. We we just we don't know. Wynn is moving along as we thought it would. They went in, they 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 expanded the convention space, they they've remodeled rooms, they're doing they're doing things at Wynn Las Vegas and Encore that you would normally expect. We don't know what's going to happen with Sands, with the with the Venetian, the Palazzo, how that company, what that's going to be like for the strip. Well, at the same time. Resorts World Las Vegas opens. This is the $4.3 billion resort owned by Gentine out of Malaysia, where the Stardust used to stand. And it's been that was demolished. It's been a site that was troubled for really since Boyd Gaming tore down the Stardust, but then stopped their big project. And it sat still until 2013 when Gentine bought it. And then Gentine finally started it up again in 2018, ahead of the pandemic, <laughs> you know, so there you go. So that's going to be a change on the strip with Resorts World coming. It's the first big mega resort that we've seen since the Cosmopolitan in, in 2010. So Vegas continues to change and move on. I think about when I, I started covering the gaming industry, you had Kirk Corian was the major stockholder of MGM Resorts, helped engineer some of the big MGM deals. Steve Wynn was running Wynn, Sheldon Adelson, and they're all gone. They're all out of the industry. Kirk passed away a, a few years ago and Sheldon uh, earlier this year. So it's a it's a real change that we've seen in, in, in the gaming industry, but for a good big change for Las Vegas that we've seen. And we know Las Vegas always goes on some in some way or fashion. Well, and speaking of kind of a, a change too, you mentioned that Sheldon Allison passed away during the pandemic. He didn't die of COVID, but COVID was a was a major a major deal in in Nevada. I mean, it, it hit the state really hard. And if you look back at 2007 when the Great Recession happened, I mean, Nevada was hit really hard. Nevada and Hawaii are are, are two two of the biggest tourism driven states in the United States. When the Great Recession, there wasn't a fear of traveling. It was just that people didn't have money to do it. Now there was this fear, you know, like, and rightfully so, right? And, and it was there's a shutdown. You can't have tourism when people are actively getting sick and dying at a, a really high rate. So we're kind of coming out of it now. People are getting vaccinated. People are going to be coming into the state again. As soon as the casinos opened, they saw a, a massive, a massive amount of, of, of gambling and, and, and revenue again. But they have, you know, they've lost a year of, of, of operating, and that's a huge deal. This is something that Nevada is going to face for a long time, the, the, the fallout of the pandemic. How is that going to affect the casino industry? Is that something that they've thought about and how they're going to shift their focus moving forward? It's fascinating. Um, in um, 2005... Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Mississippi Gulf Coast, wiped out the gaming industry in Biloxi and Gulfport. I remember Frank Farenkoff, uh, who was the head of the American Gaming Association at the time, spoke at G2E and said, this is the worst disaster that's ever hit our industry to see you know, what happened in, in, in Mississippi. And when, when 9-11 happened, 
The airlines were shut down. For several days, there were no airline flights. And Las Vegas, you know, no airline travel. It took a huge hit during that time. And it was slow to come back because, as you said, think about back in 2001, 2002, what we went through to get on an airplane again. Between the, all the checkpoints and the military guarding airports, it was nobody wanted to fly anymore. It was easier to it was quicker to drive from Las Vegas to Reno than it was to fly to Las Vegas to Reno at that one point. So it became a it, that was a challenge Las Vegas faced to get get travelers back, to get people back on airplanes and back into Las Vegas. Now you have the pandemic. I never thought I'd live to, to see a day where I'm walking down the strip and everything's closed. It was a very eerie feeling to see that for, for, for the 78 days that gaming was shut down. And as you said, Joey, the challenge coming back from people getting on an airplane again, I haven't been on an airplane in over a year. Getting people back on the planes now to come here is a challenge. I've written before the international flights. We don't have them here in, in Las Vegas. That's a big segment that we're missing out on. So getting people to come back, getting people comfortable. I think it's obvious people came back. The first, the first few weekends, back in March, when, when things were opened up to 35% and March Madness hit and the places were, it was great weather in Vegas, the places were packed. And it's been that way. It's, we've seen good weekends. A lot, of, a lot of businesses coming back. Now that we're back to 100%, getting the shows back, that's going to be the big thing. I think the Cirque shows are going to start up in July, some of the other shows. You look at Resorts World, they are holding back on the theater. They're not, they've got a ridiculous lineup of high-priced, big-name performers from Celine Dion to Carrie Underwood to Luke Bryan to Katy Perry. But Celine doesn't kick off until November. So they're, they're taking their time in, in coming back. And I think in, in, in opening, in a very slow opening, I think that's what we're seeing is that they're getting people back here is the one thing. And now giving them more to do is, is, the real, is the real challenge that this industry is facing right now. And I think that's, that's where we're at at this point. A lot of these companies, you talk about living with this for a while, a lot of these companies went out and they, they took on a lot of debt. And they redid, but they also redid their balance sheets in some way. So in a sense, they were doing that if there was a shutdown, another shutdown, or something would happen, they, were, they had the liquidity to, 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 to weather through it. That's what that's what a lot of these companies did, and they've cut some costs in different areas. Yes, employees they've they've have reduced the number of employees in a lot of places. That's that's a that's a big challenge that they're now they're trying to get people back, and this and they've had trouble trying to hire people back. So there are a lot of challenges still facing the industry, gaming industry in Nevada going forward. And it's it's not just getting people to come back because we've learned people want to come back, they want to travel again, and now it's just a matter of being able to service them the way this industry has been known to service customers. And one more thing I want to touch on kind of to, to wrap this whole thing up is even before the pandemic, I, I feel like there's always a discussion of, of the future of gaming, the future of Nevada outside of what happened this this past year. What was the future of Las Vegas looking like? What were they shifting towards? Do they need to shift or, or, or are they in a point where they can kind of maintain its reputation as this as entertainment capital of the world. Uh, the American Gaming Association had, a, had put down a mandate. They wanted to move to more cashless gaming, digital technology on the casino floor. COVID turned out to be the impetus of that because you are seeing mobile wallets now on all these different technology, gaming technology companies, gaming equipment providers. They really are technology companies now. The slot machine manufacturers, they're creating mobile wallets to be used on casino floors. And I think that's that's where we're headed. We're always going to have cash. <laughs> I think big name poker players, they like cash, but we're seeing more of the modern technology. They used to joke that you could use your 
we, you can use your cell phone to pay for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but you couldn't use it to pay for a cup of coffee at a casino. It didn't make, it didn't make sense. And that's where the change has really been pushed now along by the pandemic, by the shutdown, to get people back that are getting used to use more technology. Nevada has benefited from the growth of sports betting in the, in the U.S., Sports betting was legalized in May of 2018 by the U.S. Supreme Court. And as we speak now, that's in tw- it's legal in 28 states. And so in less than three years, more than half the U.S. has legalized it. There's 21 states in Washington, D.C. where it's active, another six states that it'll probably launch this year. Nevada has benefited from it. No, we're not the largest sports betting state in the U.S. That belongs to New Jersey, purely because they got six, seven million people living there and we don't. So that's that's why New Jersey is big. But these Nevada companies have gotten involved in sports betting in all these other states and other markets. So it's a it's just like when casinos expanded. Nevada companies went in and built casinos in other states. Nevada companies are going in and doing sports betting in other states. So that's where we're really that's where Nevada is headed. It's become a, the technology hub for the gaming for gaming in the U.S. And I think that's that's really the direction that we're seeing with the with with our state where it's headed to. Resorts World is now the first new resort on the Strip in more than a decade. I don't know about Reno. If Reno will see another major casino, right now you have the three with the now Caesars properties, the former El Dorado properties, the Atlantis that's owned by Monarch. We'll see what what City Center is all about. I don't know if you'll see a big, another big casino in Reno. I don't know if you need if Reno needs another big casino at this point. But the one thing you've known about Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada, Reno, I mean, is evolved to deal with competition in other states. I mean, Reno got hurt for what I mean years ago by Indian casinos in California, Northern California, Northern California Indian casinos really hurt Reno early on. There's been expansion now in Northern California. Their Boyd Gaming's adding a casino in, in near Sacramento, and there's two others that have opened there. They're not hurting Reno this time. You know, that's it's it's change. Reno's Reno's Reno has changed enough. So that's the one thing. I guess the state's always going to evolve. I, I evolve, I think, and we'll hopefully I'll be around to cover it a lot more. So that's my goal. All right. Well, Howard, thank you so much for for kind of giving us an overview of the history of Nevada and gaming in, in the state. It's been a it's been quite a journey to kind of start from the beginning and get all the way to here. And I think the state as a as a, as a whole has, is is better for you being able to cover it with so much nuance and depth and, and knowledge. So we're we're looking forward to hearing what you have to report next. But we appreciate it. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. A years-long effort to decriminalize minor traffic tickets in Nevada was finally successful this past legislative session. Proponents of AB 116 celebrated the development after arguing that going to jail over an unpaid traffic ticket was not only wrong, but disproportionately affected lower-income and minority groups. Nevada had been one of just 13 states where a traffic ticket was a criminal offense. Assistant Editor Michelle Rundells reports on what it all means. was new to Nevada. I was going through a divorce. I had four very young children. And so struggling to just pay that and not able to pay that, not able to pay my registration and those things. And to my dismay, it turned into a traffic warrant. So I got pulled over a second time and the officer says to me, I'm going to check to see if you have any warrants. And I said, why would I have a warrant? 
And that's when I learned about this system. And sure enough, I had a warrant. He didn't arrest me, but he gave me another ticket. So now I had my initial fine. I had found out I had a warrant for my arrest and I had a new ticket on top of that. And so I was trying to figure out feverishly, how do I take care of this? Again, I'm new to Nevada. I don't know the system. And so that's how I got started in my experience with this. Went through the whole process, you know, got on the payment plan. But if you're a struggling mom like I was, that $100 was very hard to come by. And so I fell out of the payment plan only to find out I now have a warrant again for my arrest and my license is suspended. And so now I got to start this process all over again. And Michelle, it just kind of spiraled. The voice you just heard is Lisa Mosley, the Nevada State Director for the Fines and Fees Justice Center. Like Mosley years ago, many Nevadans probably don't realize that if you get a traffic ticket in the state of Nevada right now, it's a criminal misdemeanor. Most of the time, the police opt not to arrest you for something like having a tail light out or driving 10 miles over the speed limit, but it's an option on the table. The misdemeanor status has even more implications than that, though. If you neglect to pay your traffic fine, it goes into warrant status, meaning the next time you encounter the police, even if you're doing nothing wrong at the time, they can arrest you on the spot. Nevada lawmakers have tried for at least four previous sessions to adjust this law and decriminalize some lower-level traffic offenses in the books. They finally succeeded this spring, when lawmakers voted almost unanimously for AB 116, a bill sponsored by Democratic Assemblywoman Rochelle Wynne. Mosley describes just how she felt after the Senate voted to pass the hard-fought bill. I could not stop crying. I could not stop crying. And I go, oh my God, I just witnessed history happen here in Nevada. And I began to think about all the people that I've talked to. And I wish I could share with you names and the numbers of texts and calls and emails that I get from people on a weekly basis who's saying, you know, I'm afraid to go outside. I'm afraid to drive. Afraid to go anywhere with my kids because I'm afraid I might get pulled over and taken to jail and my kids are in the car. I get these kinds of communications. And so when I was sitting there, I just began to think of all of these people and I began to say, finally, there is going to be some relief for all of these people. Local governments never quite got on board with the change. They view the misdemeanor status as an important tool to compel people to pay their fines. And those fines support the operations of courts and municipal governments. In fact, Clark County estimated that it would cost about $20 million to decriminalize tickets, based largely on what would be an inability to compel people to pay up. But Mosley and other advocates push back on the doomsday predictions about the bill. They say the price tags that some agencies attached don't reflect the expected savings of not arresting and jailing people on minor traffic offenses. And they point to one jurisdiction that has already taken a similar step. You may remember that there were efforts in the 2019 legislative session to decriminalize. That bill didn't go anywhere. But Carson City, in anticipation of that bill coming back and this eventually happening, said, we're just going to go ahead and implement this process. And so they did. And so we have a model that the rest of the jurisdictions can point to and can reach out to and figure out what that's going to look like for them. And so I think the biggest thing for them is going to be figuring out, do we need new systems? You know, How do we get 
How do we implement the system? How do we treat these civilly? You know, what that's going to look like? And I don't know if you've heard the statistics and the numbers from Carson City, but since they stopped issuing warrants, their collection rate has gone up by 8.5% annually. And even the cases that had actually been turned over to collections, they've seen a 50% collection rate increase. So I think that's pretty huge for our state. But in spite of all the celebration over what some are calling the most significant criminal justice reform of the session, there are a few important things Nevadans need to understand. Chief among them, this change doesn't happen overnight. The bill was signed earlier this month, but it doesn't take effect until January 1st, 2023, although some local jurisdictions might adopt the policy sooner. And it doesn't cover all traffic offenses. There's a long list of offenses considered more severe that remain categorized as misdemeanors. Those include driving under the influence, driving aggressively, hurting a road construction worker, driving without a valid license, and failing to stop and render aid after getting involved in an accident. So what will be decriminalized? That list includes failing to signal that you're going to turn when riding a bike, driving in a carpool lane with too few passengers, and lower-level speeding violations. The bill caps civil infraction fines at $500 and also calls on courts to notify people at least 30 days before a fine is due that they need to pay it. That can come in the form of a text message if the driver opts in. And on January 1st, 2023, local jurisdictions are required to void all warrants for traffic issues that will now be considered civil infractions under the law. But in the meantime, lawyers advise people not to wait and instead to take action and resolve warrants before they spur serious problems. Attorney Martha Menendez of the UNLV Immigration Clinic says motorists still need to be proactive in seeing if they have a warrant out against them and haven't resolved their traffic tickets. First, you have to know which uh, city, county, or municipality the ticket you got was from. So if you were uh, pulled over by a uh, Henderson cop, then you would go to the Henderson uh, website, the city of Henderson, or the court uh, system, and then just follow the prompts. There's always a prompt for you to look up your own case. These are actually also public records, so anybody can actually look this up. But uh, basically, it'll ask you to enter your information, and then a whole list of uh, any case that has ever been filed against you will show up. Uh, and if you have an active warrant, it will say so there. And then the thing to do to quash it would be to file a motion in court to ask for a hearing. Then you appear before a judge and basically promise to pay the fine, um, and then they quash the warrant. There are also ways to clear the warrant from your record before it leads to an arrest. Those include periodic warrant quashing clinics, like one scheduled for Saturday in North Las Vegas, with lawyers who will help with the process for free. Menendez also gave other suggestions. If you think you might have a warrant, please take care of it as soon as possible. Um, get the motion quashed. Uh, if, if possible, find some kind of payment plan that you can enter into to take care of it, obviously. Um, or go to one of these events that the Public Defender's Office, I know, tries to do at least once a year. Um, and people can help you there. You definitely don't want to sit on it, hoping that it'll go away, because it will not. And um, like you said, it's not going to go, this new law won't go into effect for another year and a half. And in that year and a half, trust and believe that they will still pick you up and put you in jail. <laughs> so, uh, you know, take care of it. Don't, don't, don't sleep on it. If you'd like to read more of Michelle's reporting on this issue and other criminal justice reform topics, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. 
We've now got a short excerpt from an interview that reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rundells did with Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson on looking back at this past legislative session. We have a longer Q&A, which you can find on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Sort of wanted to start with the mining tax deal, was just curious from your perspective. I, I think wanted to ask both how the deal came together. When I say deal, I mean the mining tax vote and kind of all the other parts that fell into place, but also why you think it came together this session as opposed to in past sessions where tax deals kind of have fallen apart in the last minute and there's a lot of last minute scrambling to get things done. Well, sure. I, mean, I, I think, first of all, the mining resolution or, or deal reflected a tremendous amount of, of collaboration that I, you know, obviously reflects a, a record investment in public education. I, I think it was great that the industry came forward and represented being a willing payer and a participant and wanting to do their fair share. I, I think COVID certainly helped develop a momentum to want a resolution. There was obviously out of our control effort with uh, a couple of ballot initiatives that I, I think brought more folks to the table. And then, of course, last special session, the the both the Senate Senate and Assembly resolutions that proposed to approach generating greater revenue for mining also provided, I think, motivation for folks to come to the table. I, I won't say that those resolutions were designed to, you know, engage in some back and forth. They were designed to put a, me- a measure before the people because I think our, our, our legislative institution was tired of not making progress in that regard. And so it was up to them to come together and, and, and offer something that was an alternative. And they did just that. Are there advocates that are saying a lot of the policing reforms didn't go as far as they wanted or as far as maybe they, based on some public statements from lawmakers, they expected this session to bring? What are you telling them? Well, you know, I I think that, you know, you're never going to make everybody entirely happy. I believe that we made meaningful reforms. We decriminalized traffic tickets, which I've been working on for at least eight years. We decriminalized jaywalking, which I believe leads to negative interactions with law enforcement. Again, adding diversity to the post commission with respect to non uh, law enforcement folks being on on the post commission. But we also included implicit bias training, not only annually for officers, but in screening and hiring for new officers so that we deal with those bad apples before they ever get hired. Could we have done more? Of course, we could always do more. We continue to have those conversations about what makes sense. I wanted to ask about the presidential primary bill. I think that's gotten a lot of national attention. Um, So I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls or requests for comment from national reporters. Specifically, I wanted to ask, you know, we've seen the comments. I think the governor of New Hampshire made some goofy joke about what happens in Nevada will stay in Nevada. There's obviously a lot of pressure on the interim. So just just curious, kind of like, what are the next steps for you and for Democrats in the state to go uh, into the nominating process and try to to be the first state in the presidential nominating process? Sure. I mean, look, we'll continue to work with the the DNC and the RNC to make sure that we're compliant with the rules. Again, you know, we we can only meet for 120 days every other session, but this was never for Nevada. This was because we believe Nevada is a more accurate reflection of where the country is going. And we believe that Nevada is a more fertile ground for candidates to make their case. And so they can continue to go to states that don't reflect the direction the country is going in, or they can come to a state that's a manageable size that allows them to test their messages 
not only with a diverse constituency, and when I say diverse constituency, it's not just ethnic diversity. This isn't checking a box. We have a very diverse legislature. We also have a first female-led majority legislature in the history of the country. We have diverse issues that are here in Nevada that don't exist in those other early states, whether it's advancing policies on criminal justice reform, climate change, you know, access to health care, access to democracy. We are moving forward, and some of those states are moving backwards. So we believe that Nevada serves those candidates in a better way. And so, you know, this has been also a, a bipartisan effort. There's, there have been conversations before session started with my Republican colleagues with interest in doing the same thing. Now, they're, they're, the GOP for the state has moved a different direction, but this was certainly a bipartisan-led conversation prior to session starting. And so we're going to continue to advocate for and work with both the DNC and the RNC. And, and, you know, we will land where we land. We believe that Nevada will ultimately be the best, I think, you know, training ground for candidates to make their case. What would you say uh, was the biggest accomplishment and the biggest disappointment of the 2021 session for you? Well, like I'll say the biggest accomplishment it, for me, despite having challenges with COVID and access to the building, was advancing record increases in support for public education. I, I think that that is by far you know, the best thing that we could do, the, the, the thing that's going to have the longest impact in our state for our families. So I'm, I'm most proud of that. There, there, there are many disappointments that, you know, we, we don't advance bills without the intention of, of, of trying to get some, some progress on those policies. And so all of those are a disappointment. But, but, you know, focusing on the positive, I'm proud of what we were able to actually accomplish. And for everything else, as we do every session, we dust off, get back to work and find out what we can advance and what common ground we can find for Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Howard Stutz, Lisa Mosley, Martha Menendez, Michelle Rundells, Riley Snyder, and Jason Frierson for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen, subscribe to our newsletter, soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, candle making tips, jelly bean alternatives, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the or jacob at the Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll be back in two weeks after the 4th of July break. Music